Welcome to the Fallon Forum. Ed Fallon with you here, folks, broadcasting from Des Moines, Iowa. Hey, thanks to our anchor sponsor, Gateway Marketing Cafe. That's Central Iowa's premier good food store. Gateway brings together the world's finest products with Iowa-grown foods and passionate, personalized service. If you're looking for quality foods with a community focus, check out Gateway Marketing Cafe. Hey, thanks to the uh, Des Moines Iowa session for providing the bumper music for our program. Uh, later in the show, we're going to be covering a whole bunch of other stuff, including the big climate march in New York. Uh, um, <laughs> I love this one. Um, vexatious individuals. Uh, there, there's an interesting um, public uh, information battle going on here with the definition of vexatious, vexatious person. Anyway, uh, we'll talk about also the CO2 pipelines, big stuff happening there. We'll be interviewing one of Des Moines' candidates for mayor. First, though, I want to welcome uh, Mark Klipsch to the program. Hello, Mark. How are you doing? I'm doing as well as I can, Ed. How about yourself? Good. Hey, um, I want to talk about water. Kick it off. I mean, we're going to talk about it, and I want to see how that leads into the... I think water is a great way to start a conversation about the failure of our economic model. I know you had, a, you had an intriguing quote you wanted to share with us before I do that. I, I would love to do that. Do that. Quote us. I, I, I think about these things a lot. And the quote is, the earth is so willing and able to give abundance that one must show great discipline to stay healthy and lean. The earth is basically a candy factor, and we're children that have not been taught well, or maybe we forgot the lessons and we stuff our face. And while we're fat and sassy, <laughs> at the same at the same point, we're also incredibly poor. Yeah, uh, it, it's like we it, it doesn't mean anything more after it's given to you. The, the water, excellent example. Yeah, I mean, why? Yeah, it's it's getting worse. I mean, the news this week. I, again, okay, folks who may be listening outside of the upper Midwest, uh, we are in the middle of a drought. It's the worst drought we've seen in a long time, and it's been going on. It's multiple years now, and uh, there are some parts of the state that are in severe drought conditions. Central Iowa, not quite severe, but if you look at our water source, the Raccoon River, it looks more like a creek than a river anymore. And uh, so I don't know whether you saw the news, Mark, but, um, you know, Microsoft— if you if you if you drive to the west side of Des Moines on the interstate, there are these big, huge buildings going up, and that's Microsoft data centers, and apparently those um those eat a tremendous amount of water. Um, uh, they look like big big hunks of cheese. They look like. And by the way, what, what happens when they when they downsize these things into the size of a of a, a bread box, and we have these big, huge, hunking, worthless things out there it's all going to end up in the landfill yeah they're they yeah they're yeah they're not they're not at all attractive but they're also they're also uh, gobbling up about a, well this the, the specifically the west des moines microsoft data centers are consuming 11.5 million gallons of water a month for cooling purposes and again oh i thought i read 1.5 no no 11 11.5 11. million gallons per month that's a lot of water and, you know, at the same time, we've got all this growth and development going on for housing. I mean, the suburbs around Des Moines just booming with new houses. And every one of those, of course, water. Although I will say this, residential water usage is a lot lower than commercial water usage. I mean, in some parts of the country, it's agricultural, right? But in Iowa, we're mostly 
<laughs> dependent upon rain, which again this year has been a big problem for farmers growing corn and beans. They rely on them. They don't have. They don't. They don't have irrigation pivots. And uh, if they did, they'd be draining a lot more water. But you know, you've also got Altoona. Hey, can, can I jump? Short yeah, yeah, jump in. Yeah, yeah. Go ahead. First off, Ames has wells. Right. It, it, it also has the backup of Ada Hayden, which it uses in emergencies. I was at a barn party this weekend. Some here, I'm going to get you up there, Ed. You'll love it. <laughs> okay. The pictures. It, it, yeah. it is a blast. It's what we should be doing, not going to super concerts at uh, football stadiums, you know. And I was talking to some people about this. Happened to talk about water, the fact we're drawing our aquifers out. We have no idea where we're headed. Uh, India is also doing this, too. They're just sucking their aquifers dry. It takes hundreds of thousands, if not millions of years, to replenish this. And we got to talk, and they said, you know what? They love horses over in Saudi Arabia. And I said, yeah. Horses? And they said, what do, horse, what do horses eat? And I go, uh, hay and grain. And they go, yeah, and you know how much hay they grow in Saudi Arabia? Mm, somewhere between zero and none. And like, oh, yeah, I remember being out in the West and seeing these big crop circles of hay, tons of water, very oh, yeah. water-intensive. Yeah, yeah. So we are using our aquifers to grow hay to ship, on, to ship over to Saudi Arabia, Arabia so they can ride horses. Well, That's those those, Ara water those, for. those Arabian horses are quite famous. They've got to be taken care of, I guess, right? So, yeah, so in a dual thing, they're you're producing the oil to cause climate change, and we're draining our aquifers yeah. to grow hay so they can ride horses. Right. I don't think yeah, there's a we're, single we're the smart ones. We're, we're the king of the world. Remember that. <laughs> right. There's probably no place in the world that couldn't have a similar conversation. I mean, historically. You know, the Iowa, in particular, has been blessed with enough rain not to have to irrigate crops. But now we've got the situation where not only, you know, are crops suffering because of lack of water, and that, that happens historically, that has happened occasionally, but now now we're finding that we can't, we can't afford all the new residential growth. We can't afford mm -hmm. new Microsoft data centers. And it isn't just Microsoft, but Google, Facebook, uh, Amazon, all these big companies have these huge buildings here. And, uh, and you know what, Mark, what really interests me, and this would not surprise you at all, and it really shouldn't surprise anybody, but the subsidies that go into these facilities. I mean, this is just Microsoft. This is just Iowa. Oh, no, no, all, Two, all, all of it. There's incentives for strip malls. Sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I'm just saying... By, by the way, Pennsylvania, places like that, I was talking to my daughter said, and some of the... She at college there... And they were saying, no, there's a bunch of subdivisions that don't ever happen because they don't have the water resources to support it. And they, that's the same here, but we seem to be missing that. Yeah, yeah, we're, we're putting... Uh, Arizona, New Mexico, my God, you know, California are still growing. They're yeah. already in a water debt. Well, what, what West Des Moines is now saying, oh, hey, wait a minute, any more Microsoft data centers have to show us that they've got a plan for using less water. Well, that's 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 only <laughs> that, that's not going to address the problem. You can use if you if you're using 11.5 million gallons of water a month, and you want to cut that back to what nine, eight, whatever. That's still a heck of a lot of water, and more water than we have to spare. You know. Well, what 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 kills? I don't quite understand this. 11.5 million gallons of water don't disappear, and it's still water unless they're contaminating it with something. Aren't they dual using it? You know, well, that's like, a really good point. Really good point. You know, and I don't, I don't know the answer to that, but uh, 
yeah, that, that warrants looking into. But again, you don't even have to look. You don't even have to look at numbers. You just have to look at the rivers. The rivers here show tell the story. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, and I know the, the 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 city of Ames depends on the Skunk River, and I presume that the Skunk River is not looking particularly great either. I drove past the other day. I could walk by it, get my socks wet, you know, in a, in a little bit of place. I can well, they have wells as well, and that is just, that's delusion. Well, if you uh, there's not an endless supply under the ground. In fact, it's quite succinctly limited, and we are going through it like a drunken sailor uh, spends money on, on leave. You know, yeah. I, I, oh, when it hits, there's not going to be a plan B. Yeah. All well, this monocropping with, with a drought and no extra water is like, I, oh, yeah. by the way, so I was talking with my daughter. I, I told you, as we had related earlier, we were talking. I asked her what she thought of the growth economy, and she didn't give me the answer I wanted so much as <laughs> she gave me almost another better answer. She's saying, well, this kind of grew out of the quote-unquote uh, problem slash condition of the depression People came to the cities to work in the factory because the farms weren't doing it anymore, and we became mechanized and consumer-oriented. And I went, well, well, wait a minute. Let's back up. Let's back up four or 5,000 years. That has always been the case. Sure. The basics of our society have been marginalized. Food, housing, child care. I mean, how is it that we can't afford child care? But on the other hand, we've got the people that – uh, you know, the big motors making cars and the oil executives making, you know, hundreds, if not thousands of times more than the people actually doing the work. Mm -hmm. we, we have it completely upside down. Food, family, community, children. That's the most important thing. Our food is subsidized like crazy and we yeah. throw out half of it. And this well, is the growth economy that makes money. Well, I mean, it, and it makes money for uh, a shrinking Okay, so sure. yeah, I mean the 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 modern spurt that we've seen since World War II, um, you know, can be can be accounted for by the growth in the middle class, which again, a lot of subsidies went into building the middle class, um, but those, uh, you know, you know, we kind of do away with those subsidies so that the rich can continue to pile on more and more. I mean, look at look at the income disparity in this country, how it's grown, and that's not unusual around the world. I mean, it's probably worse here than a lot of other places. But I mean, the whole model is that we must see continued growth. And again, it's sure it all it all tends to accrue to the upper crust. But again, look back here in central Iowa, where we got urban sprawl happening. Um, and, you know, greater uses of water there, greater shifting of tax incentives. Um, these uh, Microsoft data centers alone, Mark, I looked it up, 219 million. That's subsidies from the taxpayers to one yeah. business 219 yeah. million that's just iowa actually washington state way worse 753 million nearly a billion dollars in can, washington can I state jump shark on this too it yeah go a little deeper yeah yeah not only not only do we subsidize this when you use a really bad word here crap we institutionalize <laughs> them and keep them there there are yeah. so many better ways of doing things that aren't put into place because we have to protect the status quo of the growth economy. Our, our transportation system is wholly subsidized and completely archaic. It's basically a modern version of a horse and buggy. <laughs> you know, we ought to have automated transportation systems that run on rails above the ground that are powered by solar and wind. 
you know, but guess what? There's a whole bunch of people that make tires and pour concrete and yeah. street lights and yeah. engineers and all this kind of stuff. Well, it's, it's going to kill us. It's a monkey on our back uh, that we kind of, to keep the economy what it is and quote unquote competing with other countries, which is a whole bunch of another delusion. It's like, why, why, why are we doing that? If it's killing us, why don't we take care of ourselves and take care of our people and our environment rather than destroying it all in the well, name of competing? I don't, I don't know. Wouldn't, just, wouldn't you say, wouldn't say part of it is habitual. It's what we've been accustomed to doing. Uh, if, if you're, if you're, if your business hasn't grown in the past year, something's wrong. If your own personal income isn't doing better, I mean, Ronald Reagan phrased it really well back in 1984 when he asked voters, are you better, or 88 rather, are you better off than you were four years ago? And if the answer was yes, then you voted for Reagan, you know? And that's what, but that, that, that's, that, that, that's the stuff I get every day. You know, grow your business, do this, the SEO, you know, get your, I was like, no, no, I'm self-employed. I have no employees. I am just tickled pink. <laughs> I don't have to worry. Right. I know I do not yeah. want to grow. But how do you, I mean, it's, it's I, I think, you know, I, I, I don't know how to convince people, and especially our leaders, that uh, the endless growth paradigm is a failure. But I think Mother Nature is about ready to make that statement <laughs> for us. I mean, and with the, the example of the, in the news this week of the water, water situation, I mean, without water, none of this is possible. And um, we're getting to the point now where, and it's not just here, it's all over the world. Water resources are getting more and more scarce. And without that, there's nothing yep. going on. Well, and we, we've short-circuited the, the, the circular nature of it. We've disrupted everything. Uh, if you add energy to a system, any system, it becomes more volatile and chaotic. Well, we're adding tons of energy to the Earth system. Mm. And mm -hmm. look, I mean, it's just everywhere. You know, wildfires, hurricanes, tornadoes, droughts. It's like, guys, turn the light switch off. I was going to say, uh, and I'd written this down. Uh, first off, we, we've got this ravenous meat-fed dinosaur. That's another one of the things we've been keeping around. Sure, a little bit here and there, but not as a lifestyle. The, the idea is we have, or a green, sustainable economy would be a compromise and a sacrifice of some sort when we've pretty much sacrificed everything for this god of the growth economy. So what like what what are what depressed. Are, they're they're not happy. They're what, what, they're I mean, what about the green economy? A lot of a lot of people are saying that hey, if we can just switch to a more green based economy, a, a sustainable solar, wind powered, whatever, then then we'll solve all of our problems. What do you say to that? What we need to do is reduce demand not switch from one color of mud to another. I'll give you an example. Now I'm, we want to move. I'm selling all this stuff on Facebook Marketplace. It would be a lot easier to just throw it in the dump, but there's people out there that need it. There's, I can't believe when the college students move out of town, dumpster after dumpster of couches and beds and vacuum cleaners. Wow. And, yeah. And just, I'm going to like, most of this stuff is still perfectly good. It's just inconvenient. And once again, if, if the sparkly stuff wasn't celebrated so much and the basic stuff, we would be so much better off if gas and food were five times more expensive. Oh, <laughs> you, you horrible person. No. <laughs> Look at the amount of obesity. Yeah. Look at the people that aren't sick. And well, it's, 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 not, it's not quantity of food that's causing obesity. It's the quality of it. 
Yeah. Right. Well, unfortunately, yeah. Well, I, both. I some before, of. As I said before, you could you could increase the cost of food. We'd still have people that are unhealthy because yeah. they'd be spending what little food they have on pork rinds and. I got to run to a break, Mark. Uh, you know, now I want to talk sometime about. Okay, so we we ran rave about how wrong the whole growth economy is, but uh, let's spend some time next time we visit about how you know how rewarding it is to carve a different pathway. And again, I got to run to a break, but I think that'd be a really helpful conversation instead of just leaving people well, thinking how about oh. how about what what we should keep the internet, cell phones save an incredible amount of time and energy. Like the Amish, you know, they decided what technology to keep and what not, or the Mennonites, whatever. Why can't we have that mechanism rather than all yeah. of the above? Well, let's uh, like, let, let's save that for a future conversation. I got to run to a break. Okay. Um, Mark, uh, thanks so much for joining us. On the way out, folks, I want to leave you with uh, a song to remind you just how important this darn water stuff is. What do we need when the land is dry? Where do we go when the sun is Gateway Marketing Cafe is Des Moines' locally owned grocery and specialty food store, centrally located at ML King Parkway and Woodland Ave. Enjoy chef-crafted prepared foods, artisan baked goods, organic produce, hand-cut meats, local and international cheeses, wines, and craft beer. Gateway's Cafe is open for dine-in, carry-out, and delivery service seven days a week. Stop by or visit gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market. Good food, great community. At Story County Veterinary Clinic, Dr. Kim Holding has over 30 years of experience working with all creatures great and small. Cat, dog, horse, cow, elephant. Well, if you've got a pet elephant, you may be in trouble. Kim's clients stick with her year after year because they know she'll do right by them and their pets and farm animals. So give Kim a shout to keep your animals happy and healthy. Call 515-232-8766. That's 232-8766. Welcome back to the Fallon Forum. Ed Fallon with you. Hey, thanks to the Catholic Peace Ministry, an independent nonprofit with no ties to the Des Moines Catholic Diocese. Thanks to them for their sponsorship of this program. Uh, CPM focuses on nuclear disarmament, the need for diplomacy in Ukraine, and ending the permanent war economy. Learn more at catholicpeaceministry.org. And thanks also to Architecture by Synthesis. Owner Mark Clipsham asks that you use the most energy-efficient methods you can afford and the greenest, longest-lasting materials available. Examples of Mark's work can be found at architecturebysynthesis.com. All right, so we're going to cover a bunch of stuff in this segment of the program, folks. First, an update on the carbon dioxide pipelines. Okay, uh, a, lot of good, a lot of good coverage of this, um, including a story in the Iowa Capital Dispatch uh, about South Dakota. The South Dakota Public Utilities Commission 
had unanimously voted to deny Navigator's application for a construction permit. This is earlier this month. And uh, so just this week, uh, Navigator decided to release contracted land agents, I guess meaning bye-bye. You're not needed here anymore. Uh, Navigator said that the company is, quote, reallocating resources elsewhere. So... uh, Amy Salzma, she's a Northwest Iowa landowner in the pathway of Navigator's proposed pipeline and not too far from the South Dakota border. She reported that a land agent contracted by Navigator told her that, quote, the project is getting shut down permanently. That was um, indicated in a text message that was exchanged between Salzma and the uh, land agent. So uh, the company's saying, no, 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 we're, we're, we're still just considering our options. But um, it looks pretty much to me like they're not inclined to go into South Dakota. Now, for Navigator, that's not as big a deal because if they can get through Iowa, their intended destination for, quote, sequestering for a million years, the uh, CO2 is in Illinois. But the big deal is, of course, how does this affect Summit? That's the company that is basically, you know, most of the... Uh, most of the beginning points of their pipeline are ethanol plants in Iowa. They will be going north through South Dakota into North Dakota and being sequestered there. And with South Dakota and North Dakota both saying, "Now nah, we're we're going to vote we're we're going to vote to deny these companies a permit," that's a bigger deal for Summit. So Navigator might find a way out of this by just not extending their pipeline network into South Dakota, but uh, for for Summit, it's a really big deal because um, you know, they're, they're not going to be allowed to go north unless something big changes, and that might happen. Again, one thing that big that's not changing is the, the awareness that this is not a carbon, you know, this is not a climate solution. This whole thing is a, it, it's not even greenwashing. It's just phony from the ground up. Now, on the, on the subject of climate change, uh, Big, big march in New York City this weekend. They're estimating around 75,000 people showed up for the uh, march to end fossil fuels. Um, Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez was one of the speakers, um, and she said that the crowd must become too big and too radical to ignore. Now, that's, um, that's unusually strong language from uh, a member of Congress who's, you know, a member, member of her own party, uh, president Biden is the president. Um, but, you know, she was um, unabashed about criticizing the Biden administration for approving uh, fossil fuel projects. And again, you know, it's uh, I, I guess we've talked about this on this program. The, the, the Biden administration's track record on climate, and I will say he's probably the best climate president we've ever had. And then I will also point out that the bar is extremely low. Um, Obama was terrible. <laughs> Trump was the other direction. <laughs> uh, he took us backwards. Um, but, you know, Biden has been kind of a mixed bag. But, um, you know, Ocasio, Ocasio-Cortez didn't pull any punches saying, you know, this is not enough. You know, science demands better. And so, you know, we'll see. Uh, again, I think these kinds of events are important. They involve an awful lot of time, money, effort to pull off. And again, it, you know, I mean, 75000 that's a good turnout. I will remind people, though, that back in 20, uh, 2014, same month, September 2014, 400,000 people showed up for a climate march in New York City. 
So maybe the maybe the most important part of what Ocasio Cortez said about um, you know getting action on climate change is not the get big part, maybe the get radical part. I don't know. I mean, I I uh, I leave that out there for conversation, but we do notice that there are more and more efforts to get very radical on this, and some of them are being received well, and some of them seem to flop. Now, we've talked about that before. We're not going to get into that anymore today. Plenty of time for that. The one thing I do want to talk about related to this is the uh, number of universities that are divesting from fossil fuels. Brown, Harvard, Cornell, Princeton, George Washington, and just this week, uh, New York University joins the list. And that's a pretty big deal because, uh, you know, they're the, they're the country's largest private university and their endowment totals over $5 billion. And that's a big deal. That's a big deal. It's going to divest its financial holdings from all fossil fuel companies. Yeah, we'll see. I mean, so I don't know. Is that radical? <laughs> that's just good business practice, right? Um, when, uh, you know, and, yeah, and, and I know there's a lot of pressure on not just universities, but on state governments, on other entities that have large investment portfolios to take the same action. And not just, you know, divesting from big oil and gas companies themselves, but also from the banks that finance uh, fossil fuel expansion. So we'll see. Hey, um, <laughs> so I'm going to I'm going to throw this at you. I don't you know, I'm, I'm a word guy. Uh, every once in a while, every once in a while, I like to make up a word. And when I first heard this word, I, I thought somebody had made it up and maybe somebody has made it up. Vexatious. Um, maybe it's a word. I don't know. Yeah. I, and I, I know I've been vexed by problems. Uh, uh, <laughs> uh, I know there are times when I've been vexing to other people, but I didn't know there was such a thing as a vexatious person. Apparently there is because the state of Iowa wants to well, basically ban the vexatious person from being able to request uh, public information. Uh, Randy Evans former editorial board editor of the Des Moines Register, who has gone on to do some great work on his own, uh, writes in his column this week that Iowa's open records law says succinctly, quote, every person shall have the right to examine and copy a public record and to publish or otherwise disseminate a public record or the information contained in a public record. Okay, so kind of a pretty clear, everybody has a right to request public information. It's one way you keep government honest. Um, but the, uh, the, the Iowa Public Information Board, which was, that was created, by the way, that was created just about a decade ago to kind of oversee the dissemination and management of public records. That board is now requesting that the state legislature give the board the authority to designate, um, quote, a vexatious requester. I'm sure they could have come up with a a simpler term, but they probably couldn't have found one that was any funner than that. Uh, That's just a blast. Vexatious requester. Uh, So if you're a vexatious requester, and I know a couple, uh, I I, I think I know a few people they're targeting with this, you would be prevented from requesting public records. Now, um, this could be a problem. Uh, Randy has an excellent example he points out here. Um, so look at the city of Davenport. Okay, so 
there is um, a resident in Davenport who's, who has been threatened with trespass charges for criticizing the actions of certain city employees and officials. Uh, specifically, in the days prior to the collapse of an apartment building that killed three people. Okay, so I don't know the I don't know the, the fine detail of that story. I, I, I certainly know about the incident, but I don't know uh, all the backstory in terms of what kind of negligence might have been at play in allowing that building to to avoid inspections. I mean, I'm not sure that happened, but that's, that wouldn't would not surprise me. Uh, if a building was not inspected properly, or if a building was inspected and somehow the inspector said, eh, we're going to overlook that. And maybe that was a bad idea. So um, the uh, Davenport is trying to kind of, you know, silence the uh, person who's, uh, you know, saying that, hey, uh, this is not appropriate. Um, he's been threatened with trespass. <laughs> so that, that, that may be... Um, that that may be a bit of a stretch from a, a public records request, but um, I think Randy has a good point there. Um, so, and it's not like we haven't already seen uh, inroads made into making it more difficult to obtain public records. Uh, because the legislature, not too many years, years ago, um, allowed government agencies to charge the public uh, for processing records that were requested. Now, you know, th there might be some some reasonability to that, uh, but um, <laughs> as Randy points out, suddenly many governments found that they needed to consult highly paid attorneys or information technology specialists on these requests, driving up the fees that requesters would have to pay. And uh, I remember seeing this, uh, you know, I mean, as a legislator, it was easier to get a hold of information. It shouldn't be that way, but it was. So, you know, I'm, I'm kind of curious as to where this is going to go. Uh, I would not be surprised to see this legislature uh, approve the request to develop a uh, vexatious requester standard. And also, you know, again, if the Iowa Public Information Board um, and again, you know, more and more of these boards, but, but first of all, remember, our governor is trying to get rid of a lot of these boards uh, and commissions. He's, uh, she's basically, you know, can't, canceling about, what, a, a third of them, I think? A lot of them. Um, and then, you know, if you, when, when you've got complete control of state government, as Republicans do, you don't need to worry about getting your particular pet choice confirmed you just submit whatever name you want, and that's going to get through because the Senate would require it had to be at least um, uh, a third of the members of the Senate voting against that confirmation. Well, Democrats can't do that. And with the uh, stronghold that Governor Reynolds has on her party right now, she could probably appoint whoever she wants to the Iowa Public Information Board. Okay, so the legislature goes and passes, passes a vexatious requester um, standard gets to decide what is a vexatious request. <laughs> and so when, well, maybe Randy Evans, former editorial page director of the Des Moines Register, decides to request something, he gets labeled vexatious and they put him time out. And again, they can't, uh, they can't prevent you from ever receiving, ever making a request again, but they can put you in the penalty box for up to a year. I can imagine some other folks in the media uh, who... 
do this as a public service, a very important public service. I, I could imagine people maybe relevant to what happened in Davenport with the building collapse and, and the three people killed. I could imagine that if, again, if Governor Reynolds has complete control over the appointments to this board and the board gets their legislative desire, you know, there are a lot, a lot of, a lot of uh, important information that should get out in the public, might not, because the vexatious requesters are in the penalty box. Anyway, we'll see where this goes. It's, 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 it, it's consistent with the whole trend toward, um, toward less accountable government. And I saw that when I was in office as well. Uh, I remember one instant, instance where um, there was a, uh, a special committee was formed in the House to analyze what to do about hog confinements. And hog confinements are a huge problem here in Iowa. This is industrial agriculture. And they're a problem on a number of levels in terms of water quality, air quality, uh, concentration within the industry, and, and so many independent producers being put out of business. And uh, I felt as a legislator, I had to go to this meeting. Well, you know what? I, I stepped into the meeting room and I was asked to leave, even as a legislator. In a, I mean, I, I never knew of a legislative committee official committee that one couldn't attend. I was asked to leave. Uh, I refused. <laughs> anyway, um, so the, uh, the, the, whole, um, the, the, the whole bend towards secrecy and, and, uh, and keeping the, you know, the actions of government quiet and private, it's getting worse. And we need to be outspoken. And I commend Randy Evans for doing that. You know, if you've got stories from your community, your state, um, let me know. I, I, I want to make sure I can do my part to continue to expose efforts to make government less available to the public. Anyway, when we come back from a short break, uh, we're going to be interviewing one of the three candidates for mayor of Des Moines, Josh Mandelbaum. I guess it's Ed Fallon. Back with you in a minute on the Fallon Forum. Years ago, Chef George Fromaro envisioned a new market to house all his favorite foods under one roof in the heart of Des Moines. From that vision, Gateway Market was born. Over the years, Gateway has become Central Iowa's premier good food store, bringing together the world's finest products with Iowa-grown foods and passionate, personalized service. Gateway's welcoming environment in downtown's Sherman Hill neighborhood encourages discovery and honors the simple pleasures of the table. If you're looking for quality foods with a community focus, experience the good food difference at Gateway Marketing Cafe. Catholic Peace Ministry was founded in 1981 to work for peace and justice. It's an independent nonprofit with no ties to the Des Moines Catholic Diocese and is guided by an ecumenical board representing many faith traditions. CPM focuses on the urgency of nuclear disarmament and the need for diplomacy in Ukraine. CPM also provides an educational forum about the permanent war economy, which must be challenged if we are to achieve lasting peace and justice. Learn more at catholicpeaceministry.org. Welcome back to the Fallon Forum. Ed Fallon with you here, folks, broadcasting from the heart of America's heartland, Des Moines, Iowa. Hey, thanks to our sponsors, including Westrom Optometry, located in Des Moines' East Village. Dr. Joel Westrom and his staff are fluent in English and Spanish. 
The clinic is open Monday through Friday from 9 a.m. until 5 p.m. and on Saturdays by appointment. That's Western Optometry. And thanks also to Story County Veterinary Clinic, where Dr. Kim Holding has been caring for all creatures, great and small, for over 30 years. Learn more at Story County Veterinary Clinic's Facebook page. Hey, I'm delighted now to welcome to the program Josh Mandelbaum. He's a city councilman in Des Moines, and he is one of several candidates running for mayor, and we will be inviting the other candidates to join us for this conversation as well. Josh, welcome to the program. Great to be here as always, Ed. So what's wrong with you? Why do you want to be mayor of Des Moines? Well, I, I'm invested in this community. So uh, I grew up, grew up in this community. My wife and I are raising our two kids here. They're going to some of the same schools that I went to. And uh, I look at my kids. I look at the other kids and families that they're in school with. And I want to make this community work for all of them. I want to make it provide opportunity for them. And then on top of that, I think about uh, as those kids grow, as those families grow, I want to create a place that people are going to look at Des Moines and say, I want to stay here. I want to be here. I want to live here. And we've got work to do to create that type of community, a community that works for everyone uh, and, and motivates folks to stay. And, and I will say, I have unfortunately heard from a lot of people who say, you know, I'm tired of Iowa. I don't like the direction it's gone. I'm going to hightail out of here. I mean, it's a very real thing. It's part of what gives me urgency. So I've, we've known, my family has known uh, three families that have left Des Moines just this summer. Uh, they've moved Colorado, Canada, and, uh, and, and Oregon. And why? Uh, so it, in all three of those cases, it, it was largely because of what the legislature is doing in the political environment. Mm-hmm. One, one of them had a political job and... Uh, and with the change in administrations, left uh, left employment and found found mm-hmm. employment in Colorado. The other two, it was very much a, they have choices and they want to be someplace that represents their values. Yeah. And it was just too much what's been going on here. And so what I what I think you hear hear you saying in your introductory comment there is you, even if Iowa has taken a direction for the worse in some ways, uh, and we could talk a lot about that, and we do on this program. You want to see Des Moines kind of be a, a beacon of a different sort. Right. Des Moines, Des Moines should lead. Des Moines should provide a model for what progressive governance looks like. Uh, Des Moines should lead the metro. Des Moines should lead other communities looking for how they can uh, better reflect their residents' uh, interests and their values. Uh, and we can do that on issue after issue. And you're in your second term as a city council member. Uh, what, uh, what have you done to... In, in that in that context, to make Des Moines a more progressive community. So one place I, I, I always like to start is I, I talk about the things that we've done uh, to make Des Moines more sustainable and to make Des Moines lead on climate. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, for example, uh, we passed our water and energy benchmarking ordinance, which looks at the largest buildings in, in our community and requires them to compare how they use both energy and water compared to other similar buildings. So compare a hotel to a hotel or office building to office building. Uh, and sometimes just the very act of measuring allows a building to know, okay, we're inefficient. There are things that we can do and should do better and get them to change their practice. Can you give concrete examples of that happening? Well, well, I can give in the aggregate. Um, mm-hmm. so okay. I, so one of the things, um, Des Moines, and, and actually thanks to, to the school district, which had 
invested heavily in energy efficiency. Des Moines was number nine for mid-sized cities in in terms of Energy Star buildings. At, meaning buildings that... Uh... So Energy Star essentially meets a certain threshold or criteria for, for energy use. We bumped up to number two after we passed our ordinance. Okay. So Nationally? Two, nationally? Nationally for mid-sized no. cities. Behind which city? Uh, I don't remember okay. off the top of my head. <laughs> What's the competition? You got to know that. <laughs> no, it really shouldn't be about competition. But basically, you're talking about uh, uh, buildings that uh, that s- that switch from fossil fuel to solar or wind, or also about energy efficiency, I, conservation. Yeah, it's more about energy efficiency than okay. than it is the fuel switching. It's about doing the things, whether that be you know the low hanging fruit of of yeah. lighting to uh, insulation to whether it be you know programmable lighting so that you've got efficient lights, but you don't leave them on all the time. If no and that was them. your initiative as a council member? Uh, yes. You, that was le- you led the way on that? That was something okay. that I led the way on. Another example would be our 24-7, 100% clean energy standard, uh, which you know, I illustrate. We, we have a utility that has lots of renewable energy. MidAmerican has a 100% renewable energy vision. They can meet that vision without retiring any of the six coal plants they cur- currently rely on. And our 24-700% standard is the way around that. So you can't, you can't rely on meeting your 100% vision by saying, I'm going to produce 150% of the energy I need uh, in some hours. I wonder, I wonder how you got to 100% with still having coal plants. Right. It, okay. So, so you're, you don't take that credit. It, it's about getting matching mm-hmm. the load that you use on on a real-time so, basis so I'm around guessing, the clock. I'm guessing that the, again, the, the big investor-owned utility, which in this case is MidAmerican, probably opposed that initiative. Uh, very much so. They Did, were, and you passed it? We passed it. Unanimously? Uh, ultimately, unanimously. We had to compromise on, on a couple things. Okay. I, you know, when I initially proposed it, it was going to be a 2030 goal. We bumped back to 2035. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I initially proposed it, we were going to tie our franchise agreement renewal to the goal. I uh, couldn't couldn't get buy-in from others on the council on that, but so, and I, I and I know from you being a big fan of this program and a regular listener, I just made that up, but it may be true. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> you know that we care a lot about food, and um, we'd like to see Des Moines do more to uh, to become food uh, sustainable. I mean. With with uh, climate disruptions, with supply change change supply chain disruptions from a number of directions, uh, uh, you know, producing food locally is going to be more and more important. Yep, what do you have absolutely. to say about that? Yeah, well, we and uh, as you know, we've worked with you on, on the food security task force. We we need to incorporate that into our climate action and ad- adaptation plan uh, and take that to the next step. You know, one of the I think most important next steps is identifying locations throughout Des Moines proper where where we can actually have uh, more urban agriculture and where we I- identify parcels and start developing partnerships to, to get those areas farmed and producing food. Uh, really good example, I think we've got room in places around the airport where we have zones that uh, you can't develop the land because right. uh, we can't have vertical growth there. Those are really good opportunities for, for some uh, urban farming or urban agriculture, and uh, there are other places that we can identify that uh, we know over the long term won't be developed that we should be be looking at diversifying and providing those opportunities. And that all sounds good, 
And uh, would you agree that there's a sense of urgency in terms of addressing that need? Uh, I certainly feel a sense of yeah. urgency. Yeah. I, I can't speak for all of my colleagues on the on the council. Because our impression is that the, the, the sense of urgency that led the council to establish the Food Security Task Force kind of has gone away. And that's that's been disappointing. And that's something we're, we'd love to see more enthusiasm for moving fast in that direction. Yeah, I so I, I'm certainly across the board on climate. I think we should be moving faster. Mm. One of the things that I'm currently frustrated with, uh, you know, we... we are working on the city's first ever climate action and adaptation plan. Mm. Uh, that was supposed to be, at least according to initial plans, voted on in August of this year. Uh, but you're only a month behind. That's pretty good compared to some we, things. We, we are only a month <laughs> behind, but I'm not sure why it isn't being voted on. Mm. Uh, and when I don't have a a good explanation on that, like that that's how month-long yeah. delays can stretch yeah, out. Sure. And again, it's that sense of urgency. And particularly with the climate action plan, uh, this moment in time, I mean, climate is particularly important to address, but the Biden administration and the Inflation Reduction Act provide all sorts of funding opportunities that we should be taking advantage of right now and that may not be around for the long term. So we really should be getting on it because we're when we miss an opportunity, when you miss a grant cycle, sure. that's one less opportunity you have at that that funding to, to actually make a dent and actually implement plans. And I see Des Moines did get a little over $2 million for trees. Yep. And some of those could be edible trees? Not, well, not the bark, but uh, the fruit. Uh, absolutely. Fruit okay. trees. And, and I know, uh, you know, one, hats off to our forestry team for applying and, uh, and securing that funding. Uh, and I know they're open to, uh, and I, I think I've facilitated conversations between you and Shane McQuillan about talking about edible trees mm-hmm. um, or yeah, and, I, and fruit trees right. and, and, and thinking about how we incorporate that yeah. most effectively into our program. So switching gears, I mean, we, there, there are plenty of other things that a, a city council member would be concerned about. And certainly as a mayor, I mean, you still have a vote like any other member of the council, but you do have a bully pulpit. And, and what, uh, what, and that, that's really, a, I've never really liked that expression because you're not a bully at all. But no. you have a leadership position as mayor where you can set a tone, set an agenda. And what do you what do you see yourself doing with that? Yeah, well, I think one of the most important issues for us to address as a community is housing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, you can't provide opportunity to everyone without addressing housing. If someone can't find housing that meets their needs at a price they can afford, this community doesn't work for them. And is that one reason we've seen such a uh, you know a concerning growth in homelessness in Des Moines? I, certainly, that's a piece of it, right? Mm-hmm. When you when you don't have affordable housing and the most affordable housing, uh, more people uh, more people are on the cusp of homelessness and end up pushed into homelessness. Uh, one of the things that if you're going to solve homelessness or make progress on what you're seeing, you need places for, for folks to go. Mm-hmm. So that's projects like, uh, and I'm going to be participating in uh, the groundbreaking for the Monarch Apartments tomorrow, uh, which is 40 units of uh, housing, permanent supportive housing with on-site services. Anna Wim is the lead on this. Uh, the city of Des Moines was a participant. It's projects like that that are crucial to addressing homelessness. But my take is we need to build more housing of all types and at all price points, particularly affordable housing. Mm-hmm. But we need more of all mm-hmm. all types of housing. Uh, because when you don't build that, uh, you see communities around this country that didn't build enough mm-hmm. housing and people get priced out. Right. And 
I also wanted to real quickly tie it back to the climate conversation too. Okay. Because we've got opportunities to build density in downtown and on our corridors. And that's sustainable development too. It's a housing solution, but it's also an environmental solution because the infrastructure is already there. Sure. Everything that folks need are it's already there. Except for food. Except for food. <laughs> but we'll work on that. So uh, you, you mentioned earlier concern, which, I, which we share about the direction of, the, of state government in Iowa and how Des Moines can kind of respond to some of the uh, some of the negative stuff. I mean, you're limited in terms of what you can do, but uh, one of the most egregious um, changes in state government, state law, has been uh, the the attack on on women's women's rights relevant to abortion. And uh, what can the city do on that? Yeah. Well, so there's almost always something that we can do if you're creative and you're working on policy solutions. And on abortion uh, and reproductive rights, uh, I introduced a policy that identified four things we can do. One, we can recognize we don't write state and federal law, but we can take a position supporting codification of Roe v. Wade into state and federal law. Two, we can provide a travel benefit to our employees if they lose access to care uh, so that they can continue to get care. What about employees to other, uh, other for, who work for private businesses headquartered in Des Moines? Is that I, at all possible or reasonable? So that, that, that adds a bigger price tag. Sure. But part of the idea of being a leading employer uh, is that you work to get, you set the example, you set the market, and mm-hmm. hopefully that, that causes others to, to follow suit. Uh, I think we're actually probably lagging a little bit. A number of the other big employers have also already uh, started offering this or stated they will offer this travel benefit. Uh, and then we can also control how we use city resources or more appropriately do not use city re- resources. We shouldn't be investigating, collecting information, surveilling women or their health care providers. And we can add uh, reproductive health care to our civil rights ordinance so that someone can't be fired from a job or denied housing because of reproductive health care choices yeah. they've made. Those are all things that the city can do and the city should do. So one thing I always have to do when I have a, a politician on my program is ask, so let's presume you get elected mayor. What other, where do you see yourself landing in the future relevant to public office? So... I, I see my future in, in terms of my kids right now, right? So my and how kids, old are they? My kids are seven and nine. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so... They still like you. They, they still like me. Yeah, they're uh, not teenagers yet. And, and one of the great things about being on the city council and mayor being an extension of that uh, is this is a political job where you can make a difference in the community and in their lives and still be in their lives. Mm-hmm. Uh, if I'm not home for dinner, I can be home for bedtime. Right. And... I, uh, you know, I've got another eight to 10 years till, till they're out of the house. Uh, and so part of the way I see this is I'm going to be focused on, on that for the next, uh, next couple of, couple of years. And, and that, that means at least, uh, if I'm fortunate enough to be elected mayor, you know, in the near term, I'm focused on doing that job well and hopefully yeah. so serving in, t- in at least another term. In 10 years, would you rather be in Congress or uh, or the uh, or the governor's office? I, I mean, I'd rather be successful as mayor, and, and, and <laughs> I, I'm not going to give you a, a straight answer on that. I know, but I had to be mischievous and take a shot at it. I, I, I mean, I, I'm really not looking beyond. I, I mean, you know, my, my hope is someone like Rob Sands in the governor's office and and. And you don't need to ask someone like me because we have a governor that uh, that is meeting the needs of our state. Yeah. All right. 
Hey, uh, thanks so much for joining us, folks. We've been talking with Josh Mandelbaum, a Des Moines City Council member and a candidate for mayor. Again, we're going to be inviting the other mayoral candidates here in Des Moines to uh, participate in this uh, forum as well. Uh, thanks again for joining us, Josh. And when we come back from a short break, Kathy Burns is going to come on the program. We're going to be talking about um, the role of food in historic neighborhoods. Back in a minute on the Fallon Forum. Architecture by Synthesis provides planning, design, and design-build services for high-performance, low-maintenance, affordable homes and buildings. Owner Mark Clipsham asks that you use the most energy-efficient methods you can afford and the greenest, longest-lasting materials available. Examples of Mark's work can be found at architecturebysynthesis.com. That's architecturebysynthesis.com. At Westrom Optometry, Dr. Joel Westrom and his team provide a variety of services, including comprehensive eye exams, children's eye exams, and LASIK co-management. Whether strictly utilitarian or a fashion statement, your comfort and vision are Westrom's primary concern. Dr. Westrom and his staff will work closely with you to determine the best solution for your eyes, prescription, and lifestyle. Services are provided in English and Spanish, and the clinic is open Monday through Friday from 9 a.m. till 5 p.m. and on Saturdays by appointment. That's Westrom Optometry, located in Des Moines East Village. Welcome back to the Fallon Forum. Hey, thanks to all of our sponsors, including our anchor sponsor, Gateway Marketing Cafe, that's Central Iowa's premier good food store, bringing together the world's finest products with Iowa-grown foods and passionate, personalized service. If you're looking for quality foods with a community focus, check out Gateway Marketing Cafe. Kathy Burns is with me, and uh, we just got through the uh, Sherman Hill Historic Home Tour. Mm-hmm. I got through it. It sounds like it was difficult. It's, it's, it's a great event. People, it, it's back after COVID, after, back after, COVID. For, after three, three years. Three years, yeah. And people come to the neighborhood, and they look at all these beautiful homes, mm-hmm. and we wonder, what was it like back in the 1800s in terms of people growing food and raising chickens? And I don't really... No. Yeah. But we're, we're going to make stuff up, though. I, no. <laughs> st- I started to do a little research and uh, in a little limited time, but but I found a couple of articles about um, COVID has helped you know neighborhoods in Des Moines revert back to old time food growing pra- or gardening practices, and I got excited and looked at that article. They were talking about flowers. And flowers? <laughs> for the most part, one said food and flowers, but then they gave only a couple of instances of food. But I do know that people had, uh, there were there were more small markets. People had food trucks. I, I have a, a relative who had a food truck in the east, on the east side at one point, the truck farmers. What year? Um, uh, probably in the 40s, okay. I'm going to guess. Yeah. But 18, I mean, this neighborhood was uh, built... In about 1880, yes. 70s, 80s, And the 90s. home that we live in was built in 1885. Yeah, so... Completed. I mean, it, we don't have a lot of evidence as to what happened back then. I mean, but, but the, neighborhood is, the neighborhood is really committed to being as historic as possible. So we're, we're, um, we're thinking that raising chickens and growing your own vegetables um, has got to be central to a 19th century historic uh, 
you know, property. Especially if you get early in the 1900s, though, uh, the wartime efforts with the Victory Gardens and World things one, was, sure, yeah. was a big deal. Um, but this came to our attention because when we were uh, guiding people through the urban farm, when they were touring the historic home map and, uh, and stopped by our place, a lot of them would say, well, I live in, say, Valley Junction in West Des Moines, and that's a, that's a, a, a community within the West Des Moines neighborhood here in Iowa. And they, they were saying, you know, our neighborhood is known for being so historic and everything, but they don't allow people to have chickens or grow food in the parking strip. But they can park their car on the front lawn. If Which they I don't thought was kind for, of incredible. If they don't have a for sale sign on it, as I understand. <laughs> so that's kind of nice. So it occurred to me, a couple of people said, I live in a neighborhood that's supposed to be historic and they won't let us grow food. And I thought, that doesn't sound very historic to me. So we're yeah. going to dig into this. Yeah, I really don't know. I, I mean, I, I would, I'm going to assume that back in the, you know, again, this was a fairly wealthy neighborhood when it was built. And a lot of historic neighborhoods in old, old cities Mm-hmm. You know, were were originally very wealthy, and they had yeah. the fancy English gardens. So you know, when my my dad was a kid in in in, in uh, New York, and he was the son of immigrants, mm-hmm. Irish immigrants, and they were they were very poor. Um, but he remembers he he remembers that uh, Long Island, which is now much of it is developed mm-hmm. with suburban housing. Long Island was kind of the breadbasket for New York City. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm, ga- I'm guessing that maybe in a city like Des Moines, uh, you know, farm areas around the city were where food came from. Maybe maybe people didn't feel as much desire to raise food. I don't know. Um, well, they were know. eating more locally by design. Sure. Because oh, they yeah, were, absolutely. There were not the imports right. that we have now. So the food was probably more local, more nutritious, fresher. Yeah, really good. Um, I'm sure some, you know, some things had to be imported. Sure, but. and maybe, and you know, there's also probably. I'm just guessing again. More hunting. Yes. Well, <laughs> although turkeys were extinct back then, turkeys had been rendered wild. Turkeys had been shot into extinction in Iowa. In Iowa. In Iowa. In Iowa. And now but, they're but now they've they're come now, in from now they're everywhere. back in from other places. They're everywhere now. Yes. They're they're like a half mile from our house. We know there are turkeys. Well, I'll put a call out here. Um, we're going to do some more digging on this. But if folks listening to this know of uh, you know relatives from the past in the Des Moines area, Greater Des Moines area, who actually relied on their own home gardens for food, you know, tell us the story. That would be very or interesting. Or in your community elsewhere in the country too. Yes. I'm just uh, we are we're very right, curious about right. this. What, Especially if you're in a historic neighborhood. What did people who lived in homes in neighborhoods back in the 1800s do for food? We're going to dig in. Yeah. Hey, thanks to my guests today, Josh Mandelbaum and Mark Clipsham. Also to our production team of Sherry Herdina, Forrest Detterman, Charles Goldman, Kathy Burns, yay Kathy, and hey. myself, Ed Fallon. <laughs> thanks also to our local small business partners, Gateway Marketing Cafe, Architecture by Synthesis, Story County Veterinary Clinic, and Western Optometry. Thanks also to our nonprofit partners, Catholic Peace Ministry, Iowa Physicians for Social Responsibility, Bold Iowa, and Birds and Bees Urban Farm. And thanks to the Des Moines Irish Session for our bumper music. We'll be back next week, folks, with another hour of Cutting Edge Talk Radio.